Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books in Politics podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Bill Scher. Joining us today, the author of The Marginalized Majority, Claiming Our Power in a Post-Truth America. Uh, She's a Brooklyn-based writer, editor, and educator, and the co-founder of Speech Act, an organization working at the intersection of storytelling and social justice. Anisha Roy Chowdhury, thanks for being on the program. Thanks for having me, Bill. Uh, so what? Well, first, tell me what do you mean by the marginalized majority? Yeah. So basically, what happened immediately after the election is I feel like we were just served up a wide variety of headlines about how you know this election meant that we are more divided than ever. Uh, everything's basically falling apart and going to hell. Uh, and and it was like somehow in in the course of the momentum of those headlines, we lost sight of the fact that. Uh, you know, Hillary Clinton got the majority of votes. Uh, but beyond that, if you look at the numbers, if you if you actually pay attention, what we have right now is a majority of people of color and uh, white progressive Americans. So there is there is a very clear majority at work right now. And I think the reason I felt compelled to write this book is because so many people on the left and uh, progressives I know were, were feeling so dispirited. Uh, and I just wanted to make sure that we don't lose sight of the fact that we do have this majority, we do have this power, and to lose sight of that means that we're sort of giving up the fight at the worst possible time. Does this majority, uh, are they a unified majority? I mean, obviously Donald Trump won with, the, with a fewer number of votes than Hillary Clinton, uh, only 46%, but is, is there unanimity amongst the 54%? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think that there is right now. I think that there's, uh, I think, I think there's a, a bit of a, uh, gap between, uh, Americans who identify issues of importance, such as, um, access to healthcare, access to education. <clears throat> um, I think that when you look at the breakdown of the issues, there is a very clear majority, unified majority, but I don't know that people actually recognize themselves and look to each other as being unified. And I think that that's some of the work we need to do. So one of the issues that strikes me as um, uh, a a question of debate within that 54% is this question of uh, identity politics, which you talk about extensively uh, in the book, and you take uh, you criticize uh, Mark Lilla, who wrote a famous piece in the New York Times, I believe it was turned to its own book, where he was very critical of the concept of identity politics. Uh, you quote him saying, "Liberals should bear in mind that the first identity movement in American politics was the Ku Klux Klan, which still exists. Those who play the identity game." should be prepared to lose it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you, you, you don't accept that uh, critique of identity politics. What is identity politics as far as you're concerned and why is Mark Lilla missing the point? 
Yeah, I think even in that quote you just read, um, he he refers to it as a game. And, and his entire approach, which I think there's a lot of, uh, especially people who are more focused on polling, who are more focused on like running the numbers, I feel like they're really missing the more substantive point behind identity politics. And it's it's thought of as, identity is thought of as, again, as Mark Lillo referred to it, a, a game you play or uh, in other other ways, even among, um, I have, I have colleagues who are progressives and progressive activists who who support this kind of thinking as well the sense that identity is something that we can leave behind can push to the side if only for a short time in order to, to find unity and if you look at history real substantive change does not happen when we pretend that we do not have unique identities, it is precisely the identities. If you look at the civil rights movement, if you look at um, <clears throat> women's rights movements, it is these movements that hinge on identity that have done the most to change our political situation and, and our lives. So I, I feel like I'm very resistant to this narrative that seems to be a very knee-jerk reaction. And the argument is perpetuated almost any time that there's um, some kind of, you know, like Trump's election, when there's a, when there's a very disruptive moment like this, it becomes our go-to, um, way of framing, how do we move forward? And, and I think it's deeply problematic and it's, and it's, it's not going to move us in the right direction to continue to try to separate out identity, um, as though it is some kind of garment we can just take off temporarily. Is there, I, I on a previous podcast, the authors of the book, The Great Revolt, which is an exploration of the um, uh, the mindset of, of Trump voters and the different kinds of Trump voters. And one of the themes there was uh, amongst, obviously predominantly white uh, voting bloc there, a, uh, they get their backup when they're called racist. It makes them mad. They feel, they feel it's mm-hmm. unfair or, or what have you. Uh, regardless of the merits of that complaint, uh, is there a way to uh, embrace an identity politics that doesn't provoke that kind of backlash on the other side of the divide? Yeah, I mean, like, I, uh, the, my first reaction to that is that I already feel like the focus on a particular contingent of white voters is profoundly misplaced. Um, I think we should always be trying to appeal to a broad audience, but specifically from a standpoint as progressives of, you know, what or what are the issues that matter the most that unite us? And it is education, it is healthcare, it is jobs. But that is not unique to um to white Americans or to brown Americans. That is that is across the board. And I think what's been happening in the aftermath of the election is that we are so fixated on talking about these. Uh, you know, working class Americans, which so often is white working class Americans, for instance. The presumption is that that is who the working class is, when in reality, the majority of the working class is people of color. So I think we just need to be careful when we start talking about how did we get here and how do we get out of the situation? We need to be thinking about who we're focusing on and why. So my first reaction to that question is, I sort of reject the question uh, in terms of its, its, its heavy focus on a very small contingent of the population. Um, in terms of people arguing or feeling like they're getting their, you know, feeling defensive around racism. 
That's tough. And I feel like there needs to be, I, I think there, there's a lot of work to be done, especially among uh, white progressives to engage with conversation, engage in conversations with, with people who um, don't really know how to talk about race. It's a, it's a challenging thing to do. Uh, but I don't know that as a, as a sort of country, uh, as part of an, uh, the, the primary way that we approach, what do we do next? That that should be where our focus goes. So you mentioned before that you don't like the idea that we talk about this like a game. Uh, and I imagine yeah. that is sort of part and parcel with looking at this in, in electoral terms, because in some ways it is, by definition, a numbers game. You need more votes to win in the particular states that make up the electoral college. So if you're looking at 2016 yeah. as we didn't get these number of voters, how do we get them back? You're, that, that lends okay. itself to a, a, a game playing framework. But if you're trying to say, sure. look, there are issues that matter to uh, to non-white voters or to women or to people of different uh, faiths or economic backgrounds, um, we can't have that discussion unless we're talking about their identities. There, there seems to be a bit of a disconnect there. Am I getting that wrong? Um, I'm not quite sure I understand. What's the disconnect? Well, it, if if you're saying that we have to talk about identities or we're not going to address these issues, mm -hmm. uh, that's a different end game than how do I win the next election, which involves, you know, to some extent, uh, uh, talking about numbers. Oh, yeah. No, uh, it, it, no, there's there's not a conflict there. Um, so I'm sure you were, you know, following the news when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez won in the primary. And she was based on polling numbers way behind. There was no way she could win. Right. And then she did. Uh, and spectacularly so. And when she was interviewed about that and was like, well, you know, uh, what, what do you think about the fact that you were way behind in the polls and there was this huge upset and you won? <clears throat> and she was totally unfazed and just said, well, you know, what happens is when it comes to polling, a lot of times people are looking at the voters who um, usually come out and basing their projections on that. And she said, what we did is we approached voters who may not have usually come out. So that's part of the problem in our numbers game. And actually, Steve Phillips, uh, in his book, Brown is the New White, does a really excellent job of breaking down how the sort of just default focus on a certain contingent, whether it's uh, white swing voters, but it's usually white voters, um, how that ingrained focus causes us to do the math wrong, you know? So, I mean, in a lot of ways, if we look at, if we look at the projections for this past presidential election, I think Americans are starting to understand that how we're running the numbers is also not working. Um, a lot of campaigns, uh, this is also a question I should add uh, from one of the super fans of the show. I give them opportunities to pose, pose questions in advance. Um, mm -hmm. Does the fact that every campaign will have these, these, you know, modern data analytic tools that yield rich demographic information uh, for both parties. I mean, you, you, Republicans and conservatives might complain about identity politics, but they target certain identity, identity groups too, uh, mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, white working class or uh, Christian evangelicals or, or whatnot. Um, does that just make 
po- identity politics and political campaigns unavoidable. It's going to happen no matter what you do. So you might as well try to do it in an honorable way. Yeah, I think I think that that's there's a lot of truth to that. Um, I think the reality is um, marginalized Americans they experience a different America, right? In terms of the resources that are offered to them, in terms of the obstacles that they face. So if you are trying to speak to voters and receive a large number of votes, and the majority of Americans experience very specific issues that they would like to see addressed, you are inherently talking about speaking to identity in some respects. You also talked in the book about... uh... Uh, how uh, you had conversation with with a friend of yours, and I should say the book is is loaded with really great um, personal insights from aspects of of your own life. Uh, uh, you had a conversation with someone during the 2016 uh, presidential primary uh, who was leaning towards Hillary, and uh, she thought she was being pragmatic, and you thought perhaps she was being more cynical and limited in her, mm-hmm. in her thinking. Um, and a lot of that conversation is, is going to come to bear again as we head into the 2018 midterms and the 2020 presidential primary. You know, what, is, what, what is hard-headed to get what we want, which is to get Trump out of office and, uh, and retire his brand of, of nativist politics? Uh, okay. And what might be uh, more inspiring, uh, which could, what you are saying before, you know, could sort of break out of this numbers game and bring more people into the process that weren't participating uh, before. Is, is there a risk of us being stuck in 2016 perpetually and having this conversation over and over again and not coming to a consensus about what makes sense for the future? Uh, I, I'm sure there's that risk, although I do feel like the unprecedented numbers of Americans who are now uh, engaging in activism, um, and even if they're not going to direct actions or marches or whatever it may be, they are paying attention in a way that they have not in quite some time. And I think that that is hopefully, um, <clears throat> not hopefully, that, that is going to lead to a different politics. I think the the question is really, will the more ingrained political machinery keep up? Can they keep up with the shifts that are going on, with the demands that Americans are, are, are making for real substantive change? And, and yeah, the conversation that you're talking about that I, that I write about in the book, I feel like m- most Americans who, have, who talk about politics with their family and friends, which I hope every single American does, they should do, um, this notion that, that uh, politics is not meant for the dinner table, I think is, is a profoundly problematic. Uh, but that conversation, I feel like so many Americans can relate to. Um, there, And it, it's an ongoing tension. It's, it's uh, we, we don't want to be so naive that we're just voting for a candidate who has no chance of winning. Um, but we also don't want to um, lower the bar of our expectations and hopes so preemptively. And the fact that my friend was concerned from the start to the point that despite the fact that she supported Bernie's policies, um, she didn't even want to see that support through for even a short period of time to see if that could then lead to, to find out if like a a majority of other Americans would also step up on board. Um, So I think there's this way in which we censor ourselves. We sort of have accepted that 
the political situation and the kind of political leadership that we um, can hope for is 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 pretty sad, you know. Like, there's just a very low bar, and I think we need to do the work of of um, holding holding leadership and potential leadership to to a higher bar, and and hopefully doing the work of um, you know instead of feeling like this is a passive thing where we just sort of watch these political races happen and from the sidelines say, well, who's most likely to win as though we ourselves are pollsters. I mean, the fact is we're supposed to, if we support someone, we should be knocking on doors. We should be, um, again, talking to our friends and our families about, um, the issues that matter and, and who's most likely to address them. You know, this is, this is about our, our lives and livelihood. Um, yeah. Uh, you also talk a lot in the book about the value of protest, uh, and uh, how that should inform uh, you know, sort of resistant efforts going forward. Uh, you're critical of an of a online essay that was written by someone named Jake uh, Fuentes uh, on Medium.com. This was early in the Trump administration after the mm-hmm. uh, uh, so-called travel ban was first implemented, and there was immediately. This is only a few days after the Women's March, you know, post uh, uh, the after the inauguration, and then people were flooding into airports uh, trying to. Uh, uh, protest these actions and help people who were getting stuck. Uh, and that argument was that people who were protesting were getting distracted uh, by mm-hmm. Trump. Uh, and the, you, the essay says protesters get, get all kinds of feel good that they're among fellow believers and standing up for what's right. And they go and feeling like they've done their part. Uh, but uh, that he's suggesting that uh, that was more of a self-indulgent type of activity. It doesn't actually produce the change that that people want um that well first tell, tell me what you think was wrong of that critique yeah i mean i don't think there's anything wrong with trying to figure out uh what else we need to be paying attention to right it's never just about a single protest but the whole presumption that that piece hinged on was this notion that by protesting we were somehow being distracted inherently and it just doesn't align with what I've seen when I've been at these kinds of protests. No one I know goes to a protest and then, you know, uh, (laughs) just sort of dusts their hands together and says, well, that's done. Uh, You know, the fact is, if you're politically engaged enough that you're going to these protests, you're often part of online groups uh, that are regularly following the headlines, regularly engaging with what's going on you know better than most people how bad things are and how much more needs to be done in order to really change the situation. Uh, and also, I think part of that article that frustrated me was that it's, it spoke of a lot of privilege, right? The notion that protesting in, an inherently um, aggressive, uh, like we're talking about people who are seeking asylum, being held at airports, families being returned to their country of origin, who face persecution. Uh, for that to to use a protest of a legitimately monstrous policy uh, as an argument for look, we're losing sight of the bigger picture here, um, just made me think. Wow, uh, Jake Puentes. Clearly, does not have a family member, or uh, like, can he conceive of any of, of a family member or a friend who is who is caught in such a horrendous situation? Um, you know, this isn't just some sort of piece 
of a, of a, you know, again, that sort of mentality of like, it's all a game. Um, it's not, there are lives at stake. So, so I really bristle against these notions that, um, you know, that, that protesters are naive or, um, wasting their time when in, and it's really just an ingrained narrative in this country and, and perpetuated by, um, a lot, a lot of journalists and, and publications perpetuate this narrative. And, uh, it, it just, if you look at history, it does not pan out. Um, protest is one of the most profound and, and, um, profound ways of, of helping to push change forward. A protest may not lead to directly to a piece of legislation, um, you know, like point A to point B, but it is all part of turning the tide. Uh, so even if you know Fuentes was uh, misguided in criticizing that particular protest, as you say, there are real lives at stake, and some lives were directly helped. You know, you know lawyers got to the airports, and some people you know got got to come yep. in the country. He, he, Trump had to revise the the travel ban, even though it's still not good from a progressive perspective. He, there was actual pressure put on the White House to adjust what what they were doing. Um, is right. there still an argument that uh, it is possible for a protest to not be strategically focused? Uh, I mean, even, even protesters need strategies. I mean, the whole Rules for Radicals by Saul Linsky is about how to have good protesting strategies and good, and, and good focus. Uh, something like, say, you know, Confederate statues is not about real people's lives. It's about s- symbolic representations of our history. And you can argue that mm-hmm. history is important to get correct, and it's not inherently trivial. Uh, is it possible that Trump and other folks can, you know, leave progressives bait that doesn't serve their larger ends if the bait mm-hmm. is taken? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think we need to um, we need to think critically about anytime we're engaging in protest and action. Think critically. We all have limited amounts of energy uh, and time and resources, and that's just just the fact of being a human, right? But I think the thing that I am trying to push back against is this broader understanding of protest as a zero sum game, which I think is often how we discuss it. Where it's like, okay, well, there's these there's these people over here protesting Confederate statues. Um, but meanwhile, you know, our country's going to hell and it's like, that's okay. There are a lot of Americans. (laughs) There are a lot of protesters. If some people want to protest Confederate statues and raise attention to a history that's been largely obscured or erased, uh, that can be part of a larger tapestry of changing the narrative. Um, so yes, we should be strategic about where we spend our energy and ask ourselves as individuals that question, like, where do I want to put my energy? But I, I feel like it's problematic to then look at other protesters uh, and say like, oh, well, they're just wasting their time. Um, I think that that's, yeah, yeah. I think we should just be cautious of that. Uh, I'm talking to uh, Anisha Roy Chowdhury, uh, author of The Marginalized Majority on the New Books and Politics podcast on the New Books Network. Um, you had a passage uh, towards the uh, end of the book where you talk about um, a, uh, a activist group you were working with that had some difficulty coming to consensus over what their uh, statement should be. Uh, in particular, uh, you wrote, uh, after hours of discussion and debate, we kept coming back around to two sticking points. Should we center this around a call for Trump to resign? If we did, we'd be taking advantage of a lot of momentum against him. But we all knew Trump wasn't the only problem. 
The problem was the system that had allowed someone like him to rise to power. The other sticking point was whether to put words like Americans, America, and democracy at the core of our message. For some, the words have been too corrupted to lay claim to any longer. And so those disputes uh, at the end were, uh, made it impossible for the group to come to agreement. Uh, that brought back a lot of bad flashbacks to me from my days at Oberlin College. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, what was your uh, takeaway from that experience? Is, 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 what does that tell you about the challenges uh, involved in getting the marginalized majority to come together around a common goal? Yeah, I, I mean, this is this is again. That's like I included that anecdote because I feel like anyone who is engaged in um, progressive activism and organizing can completely relate. There's always a contingent of people who are like, "Well, we can't use the American flag. It stands for all of these profoundly uh, problematic things," uh, which is true, right? Like, it's not that they're wrong. Um, the terms American, America, democracy have been bastardized by so many people, but I feel like there's a real problem in then assuming that those concepts and those notions are static and fixed. Uh, I think America has always ever been, and democracy have always ever been, um, aspirational, right? And always in motion. We're always trying to work towards it, and it's always been imperfect. Uh, but I think we, if if we don't try to reown those and instill them with the meaning we want them, we we would like to, we're then basically handing them off to the far right. We're we're letting them be used, you know, like "Make America Great Again." It's such a pointless and absurd phrase. But there's power in patriotism. People want to be a part of something. People want to be proud of what their country stands for. And if we decide that we're just not even going to try to use those words or engage with those concepts, I, we just lose. Um, one of our questions from uh, the show Superfans uh, is, uh, America has a distinctive culture of individualism that stands in contrast to the more collectivist mindset of Europe. What would you say to the argument that focusing exclusively on group identities without giving any credence to the power of individual liberty will fail to appeal to a lasting majority of the American electorate? Interesting. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to break down that question. So the, it's the notion that if, we, if we're appealing to a large group, we lose a sense of individuality and, a, and... Well, in a sense that that's sort of embedded in the American fabric that's sort of premised upon individual yeah. liberties. And you're talking about group identity that inherently rubs some people the wrong way. Hmm. Yeah, I guess the group identity I'm talking about is uh, more of a like loose affiliation of a lot of people who can identify with, you know, like something that comes to mind is the power of the Occupy Wall Street movement to me, the heart of it was this notion that we are the 99%, obviously, which is, is kind of a group identity. But what, what you saw during that movement was, uh, you know, people posting photos of themselves holding signs about their personal debt, whether it was student loan or medical debt, or the fact that they were losing their house. Um, these are profoundly difficult challenges that, that that we face as Americans struggling to survive in this country. And I think that individualism, as it's 
as it's like commonly experienced and felt creates some real shame around that. Like there's a, there's this notion that if you fail, it's because you weren't up to the task. So I think the power of, of Occupy Wall Street was that people were sort of coming out of this closet of shame when it came to debt. Um, and, and I feel like there was such incredible power. So, uh, I guess, yes, I, I think it's something to be mindful of this notion that, um, you know, how do we appeal to Americans in a way that taps into some sense of individuality that we hold dear. But I feel like the thing I'm more concerned about and hopeful about is, is this notion that if there were a collective identity that actually made us feel seen as individuals, there's serious untapped power in that. And to, to that point, you say in the book, talking about sort of the, the, the strength of uh, marginalized people, uh, marginalized people know what it's like to hold multiple realities as we navigate a culture in which our experiences are so frequently minimized or erased. At a time when a growing number of Americans okay. feel their realities are under attack, we have a leg up. Who better to appeal to a broad swath of Americans than people who are schooled not only in the rhetoric of white male subjectivity, quote unquote objectivity, but in a richer perspective uh, and experience. So uh, are, are you arguing sort of along the lines of what Sonia Sotomayor once said in a 2001 speech that the, the wise Latina with her experiences can come to a better decision than, than someone who didn't necessarily have the benefit of that experience. Right. I think there's some real truth to the fact that when you're talking about marginalized Americans, you're talking about people who are raised from the get-go to, again, hold separate realities. Um, and that that inherently, not inherently, but but oftentimes like that can lead to a kind of empathy and understanding of others in a way that if you were uh, came of age and were acculturated as a white man in this country, it might be harder to step out of that perspective because that is just the dominant pervasive perspective. So for instance, in the, uh, the Supreme Court confirmation hearings for Sonia Sotomayor, Jeff Sessions was very up in arms about the fact that she had acknowledged that being raised as a Latina in this country shaped her sense of herself and her perspective. And for him, that was just like, well, then you're going to not be able to be objective. And what's so fascinating to me about that is, is that Jeff Sessions somehow thinks that his perspective as a white male is more objective. The sort of underlying implication is that that when, when that in itself is its own subjectivity. Um, Does, uh, I mean, you're, you're talking about identity politics in a very uh, comprehensive, uh, thorough way. Uh, is it possible that the way it gets practiced in our online discourse, which arguably is sort of maybe not how we should be judging the quality of ideas and concepts, uh, but for example, I, I saw a lot after the 2016 election, people focusing on that 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump uh, and noting that African-American women you know, had the, with the strongest amount of support for Hillary Clinton and sort of suggesting this means that this one group of people is superior to another group of people uh, when uh, you know white women, like white people in general, generally vote Republican have for for a long time. It wasn't new that white women lean Republican. 
and and should a white woman yeah. who didn't vote for Trump who did vote for Clinton should they be feel like she is less of a of a person because she is affiliated with a group of people that went the other way. Um, is, is there a risk that that kind of mm. group classification is going to rankle some because they're getting tarred for actions that they didn't take? Yeah, uh, and I think that there has not been enough made uh, of the fact that there is this this contingent of Americans that is extremely powerful, which is white progressive Americans and. They don't, no one really writes about them. Uh, and I feel bad about that because it would be really nice uh, for everyone to have a little more focus on that rather than this uh, very problematic and oversimplified like white working class. Again, because that's being separated out from the fact that the, the working class of America is majority people of color. Um, so yeah, I think, I think this is another example of how the media tends to oversimplify uh, and we lose sight of of a more nuanced picture, which is that without white progressive Americans, uh, it's harder to win. But there are there is a substantial contingent of, of these folks who are fighting the good fight alongside of, um, you know, the rest of marginalized Americans. And that seems to be a question that comes up a lot lately, this question of allyship. What does it mean to be a good ally? Uh, uh, and I, I, I don't know how I'm going to ask this question in a way that's not going to be uh, irritating because... Uh, but, uh, I, I feel like, um, there's plenty of, uh, talk that to be a good ally should just, you know, listen to other groups of people, not always, you know, take the floor yourself, uh, or, uh, pre- and pressure on, uh, white Americans to, you know, do more, not look to others to, to solve the problem for you, take ownership for your own, your own actions, uh, is, is there a single right answer? Is there a checklist of things that uh, white progressives or or other whites should be doing? If like, I want to be a good ally, here's the things that I should be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is tricky because, well, one of the things that I think I would really like to push back against is this notion that to be a solid white progressive ally, you need to be quiet and sit down. Um, there's the way it's talked about is often reinforcing this notion of passivity and, and being a great ally is not about passivity. It's about active, an active role of creating space. So what that might look like is if you are, uh, a, a white person in a room with primarily other white people and, um, and no one else is paying attention to whose voices aren't being heard, um, or are missing asking yourself, how can I make space for that? Uh, and, and that is an active role. Also, when it comes to, you know, direct action, there have been many instances of, because the fact is that people of color uh, and queer folks generally are more inclined to uh, be arrested or um, experience violence from uh, police. So if that's another way, I mean, obviously I'm not asking I'm not saying that to be a good white ally, you have to put yourself on the front lines and possibly face arrest and violence. But if you are someone who engages in direct action, think about that as well, that like that you can use your privilege as a way to um, help in that context. Uh, And then obviously just educating yourself. Right. I I think that a lot of times when I've had conversations with um, white progressive allies, they're kind of like, 
well, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I know I have privilege, but like, what am I supposed to do? Um, <laughs> and I, I understand the impatience. It's like, I want to be able to do something. Um, but I think that there's a way in which really, really uh, reorienting yourself to to the history of this country, really reading more deeply, uh, reading reading folks of color, their, their work, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, just like expose yourself to all these different narratives and that it may not feel active but the fact is it it is it changes how you view the world and that's going to influence everyone's lives in the way you move through your day-to-day interactions and and also obviously when you know being able to call out fellow white folks when they say vaguely racist things uh or blatantly racist things. Uh, we, we need white folks to be engaged in those conversations because it takes a lot more energy and there's much more risk for people of color to try to engage in those conversations. And, and frankly, a lot of us are very tired of doing so. What do you hope people who read The Marginalized Majority, what, what do you hope their takeaway is? I mean, I would just hope that, I, 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 think, I think folks who have done a lot of work um, protesting, organizing, you know, a lot of what's in here won't be new, but I think it's a healthy, uh, consolidate, consolidation of like, it's a spirit, it's a spirited, uh, narrative that is just a reminder that we have an insane amount of power. Um, and yes, there are a lot of obstacles in terms of changing some of the practical things on the ground from the gerrymandering that's happening um, to electoral college. But the fact is that we are the majority and there's, a, and, and that we need to keep reminding ourselves of this. I remember getting into a conversation. I was interviewing this, um, lawyer and I was, I was asking him, a labor rights lawyer. And I was asking him about, you know, like, what's the legality if there were a general strike, like, what is the legality? What do workers risk? And he kept pushing back, uh, on my question. And he was like, look, this isn't about legality. And I didn't understand it until later when I was typing up my notes. He was really just saying like, look, this isn't about laws. The law follows power. The law follows what's happening. Uh, And if we are making our demands and needs heard, if we are continually uh, demanding the change that we need, the laws will follow. And I think there's uh, an ingrained passivity in terms of how a lot of Americans view what their role is in our political situation. And it's like, well, I can't do that. And we're all screwed because of this law. And now, you know, the fact is, if we if we make our voices heard, law follows us, not the other way around. And it's going to be a fight. There's no doubt about that, especially with what's going on with the Supreme Court now. But we've seen this before. And it's and it's about it's about not letting up. It's about acknowledging that, that we have this power. So I feel like this book is generally just reminding us that we are the majority. And if we continue to flex our muscles in this way, um, there's really nothing we can't do. The book is The Marginalized Majority, published by Melville House. The author is Anisha Roy Chowdhury. Thanks so much for being on New Books and Politics. Thanks for having me.